Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. For the past couple of months, we've been looking at the I am statements that Jesus makes in the gospel according to John. And as we've done that, we've tried to put Christ at the very center of our focus as a church. We always try that, but it's particularly easy to do that when you're looking at these sayings of Jesus where he talks about who he is, and he uses the words I am. In Greek, it's ego eimi, and it means, uh, it's a reference to God's name in the Old Testament, to the name of Yahweh, going back to Moses being called at the burning bush. Uh, it is Jesus saying, I am the one true God. And it's Jesus asking us to look at him and find our identity in him. He's calling us to eat the bread of life, to move into his light, to follow him as the good shepherd, to enter through the gate that he provides. He is the gate. To look to him for the hope of the resurrection and the life and to walk with him in the way, the truth, and the life. And we've seen all these different sayings of Jesus. And so today we come to the last of these I am statements uh, where Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine and we are the branches. And it's no accident that this is the last of these I am sayings of Jesus because this one highlights the communal relational aspect of Christian faith. And it does that because Jesus is preparing to leave the disciples and he's getting them ready for that shock and disappointment and that transition ultimately into a new hope. We've seen the communal dimension of who we are as Christians gathered around Christ before in these I am statements with when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And he talked about the sheep, his sheep, knowing his voice. But what we see today is this organic togetherness between branches that grow out of a true vine, or we might think of it as the trunk and the roots of the trees we're more used to in our climate. It's a togetherness between the church and Christ, a unity. It's the mystery, ultimately, of how we can be with Christ. One of our hymns describes it as a mystic, sweet communion, as the body of Christ, and that is at the very heart of our faith. So let's pray before we open our Bibles to John chapter 15. Holy Spirit, would you help us today to see beyond the words on the screen or on the page? Would you help us to hear the truth of your call to us to come close to you, to remain in you, to abide with you, to find our purpose in you and to receive your love and your grace? Would you make these words sink deep into our hearts and our souls so that we can know you more and more? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I encourage you to grab either a hard copy of the Bible or a screen. Um, you can look on whatever you're looking at, but if you've got something in front of you, you'll be able to uh, refer to various verses as I do that throughout the sermon. So we're reading John 15, verses 1 to 17. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. 
No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite things about this time of year is the green. The green that is coming all around us. It feels at times like it's almost tangible in the air. Things are growing. Buds, shoots, daffodils, trillium, magnolia, you name it. My daughter, Lily, is growing things in her room, too. She's following in a noble McLeod family tradition. She has a collection of cacti. Now, the cactus is the perfect low-maintenance plant for a busy young person. When I was in my late teens and into my 20s, I acquired a number of cacti and succulents. I was quite proud of them, but the truth is I put them in a corner, left them alone, and only watered them on special occasions, like Christmas and Easter, that kind of thing. And to my amazement, they did not die. I had had some uh, other kinds of experience with plants that were not cacti earlier. But taking care of a cactus is pretty much the opposite of what it takes to be a good gardener. A couple of years ago, I got some advice from my mom and from my mother-in-law about gardening. We have these forsythia bushes in our backyard, and they always look amazing at this time of year. They're bursting right now with their yellow flowers, and we were feeling pretty good about them until both Granny and Nana pointed out that they were nowhere close to as beautiful and as shaped uh, and as full as they should have been. They told us that we needed to prune them. Now, I am familiar with this concept of pruning but, pruning, but I've always found it to be weird. I mean, you want your plants to grow, right? So it seems strange to cut back that growth, especially when it's growth that's blooming with flowers. But if you want healthy plants, you have to prune them. You have to trim back shoots that aren't going in the right direction, you have to cut branches that are tangled and turning in on themselves, and you have to remove parts 
of the plant that are dead. You prune a plant effectively so it can stop wasting its energy, so it can be productive. And if you really want to grow something, you need to pay attention. There has to be daily care and nurturing in order to help it grow outwards to ensure that it moves towards the light, that it flourishes. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. That is the opening line of John chapter 15. Jesus is the vine out of which we grow as branches. And God the father is the one who tends to the growth. And in this passage, we learn how Jesus wants us to be fruitful individually and as his church. First of all, it comes through suffering. Secondly, we are called to remain in him, to abide with him. And third, our fruitfulness comes in our togetherness as his friends, as the church. It cannot come individually with me and Jesus. It always comes collectively as his people. At the end of John 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus encourages us, but he does not give to us the way the world gives. He isn't thinking short term. He isn't selling us a vision of Christian faith as all flourishing and growth in good times. No, in the very next chapter, if you flip the page to John 16, he says, in this world you will have trouble. And here, in what we've read, he starts with the hard stuff. He starts with pain and with loss. He talks first about pruning. All of us tend to want things to come easily. We don't want to hear that suffering is necessary for us to be fruitful But Jesus says that his father is the gardener who prunes and shapes us. Plants don't grow overnight. And Jesus invites us to see our life from a long-term perspective, as, as a long obedience in the same direction. I think many of us look back on the trials that we've experienced, and we can see now that a period of suffering that we had to endure was how we became more deeply rooted in the Lord in the long run. But we need to be clear that God doesn't inflict suffering on us. He is good and there is nothing evil in him. But he takes the evil that we see around us, that's loose in the world, and that's also within us, in our hearts, and he uses our trials for redemptive purposes, to bring us closer to him. It is, I think, pretty offensive in our culture, in our world of nonstop escapism, to say that, that we might want to accept our pain, that we should submit to suffering and even embrace it as something God may be giving us as a gift. And it takes time to get there, but we know that we worship a God who went to the ultimate place of suffering for us, Jesus went to the cross so that we could truly live. And God prunes us so that we can flourish with him. Now, I don't want to minimize how painful this can be. I don't want to give easy answers to this question of suffering. If you've ever seen a plant after a gardener has pruned it, it looks like a disaster. 
Things that were perfectly good, leaves and branches, flowers and fruit, are lying all over the ground, and the plant looks barren, like it's all scarred up and bleeding even. Here's a picture of a thriving grapevine bearing its fruit. It looks amazing. It looks like there's, a, there's potential there to, to reach out and grab that fruit and enjoy it. But here's a picture of a vine after it was pruned. The contrast is pretty stark. It, it appears to be dead. But only after a grapevine and any number of other plants have been pruned will new life be possible. And this next picture is of the branches that have been cut off of a grapevine. These pictures were taken in Provence in France. And there's a warning in this passage that this really is life and death. Jesus says, remain in me and put my words into practice. Love like I have loved. This paves the way for flourishing, the pruning of a plant and our own pruning. And here is a picture of that whole vineyard in the south of France, which I thought was, I was quite moved by it because when I saw this for the first time, I thought of the church in North America. I thought of the dry bones of Ezekiel chapter 37. And I asked myself, are we being pruned during this pandemic? pruned of our consumerism within the church, pruned of how distracted we've allowed ourselves to become. When Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you, it doesn't mean clean like you took a bath. It literally means cleansed or purified or refined by having unessential things stripped away. And that's what we've gone through this past year, isn't it? At first, every pastor I knew was consumed with the need to pivot to online church and eager to find the opportunity God was giving us through the pandemic, as as shocking as it was. And I was like that too. But I have to say, now I'm mostly sick and tired of the whole thing. That doesn't mean there isn't an opportunity that we're being presented with. And, And I think what I've come to realize over the past 13 months, is that the opportunity is an invitation to rest in the difficulty of it all, to learn to lament, not as something you pass through quickly on the way to celebration, but lament itself as worship, lament as something we need to adopt as a practice that we take more seriously. Lament as essential to growth. Lament as fruitful in its own way. Martin Luther said that the word, God's word in scripture and God's word preached, the word does a lot of cleaning in our lives, but some things can only be removed by suffering. God isn't the source of our suffering, but he is always with us when we suffer. He uses the trouble in our lives to point us to the light. He uses it to draw us to himself so that we depend on him more and more. But at the same time, growth is not automatic when you come through suffering. 
You have to remain in him, and and that requires initiative. Jesus says in verse 4, No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, nothing here does not literally mean nothing, because clearly a lot of people who have no connection to Jesus at all do a lot of things. No, nothing here means nothing truly substantial. It's a qualitative nothing. It's not quantitative. It's not about how much we're doing. Because we all know we can be super busy and and really doing nothing. Have you ever been busy for a whole day and then looked back on it and wondered, "What, what did I really accomplish? What was that all about? Jesus is saying that we can do nothing that will truly last apart from him. Nothing with real life in it. And I think the longing of our souls at a deep level, is to do something, to be part of something substantial, something real, something that makes a difference, that has a purpose. You can think of the story that Jesus tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount of a person who heard the words of Jesus but didn't put them into practice and so built his home on sand. And when the storm came along, his house fell apart. To remain in Jesus is to abide in him. It's to to be with him, and to make our true and lasting home with him. And that's a home that can never be shaken. Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People says we are born dependent, we strive to become independent, and if we ever reach maturity and wisdom, it's because we have learned to be interdependent. But many of us, I think, get lost in that striving to become independent, to make a name for ourselves, to control our destiny. Jesus warns us not to buy into the world's false idea of freedom. He says, remain in me and don't go running after the things of this world. But how are we supposed to do that? Well, the passage says to us, we do that by his word. We've already seen in verse 3 that Jesus refers to the word he has spoken to us. In verse 7, he describes remaining in him as having his words remain in us. And he's talking about the Bible, the words of the Bible there. He's also talking about God's word as it lives within us, as the Holy Spirit uh, applies it to our lives, seals it in our hearts and our minds. To grow as a Christian is to learn to listen to Jesus, not simply to assent to what's in the Bible and good doctrine. I love that we started this series with a reflection on Jesus being in the home of Martha and Mary and the priority of choosing the one thing, the best thing, and that is resting in the presence of Christ, aware and attentive to him. Jesus remains with us as we listen to him as his friends, as we develop a relationship with him that that has been called the transforming friendship. When his words find a home where they are taken seriously and enjoyed and savored and listened to expectantly and responded to honestly, that brings delight to him and it brings growth to us. You can think of this as a conversation We believe, as Christians, that we can talk to Jesus. We call that prayer. Not just about what we want, but about what he has said to us. That is the essence of any good conversation. And then we can talk to Jesus about anything at all. Jesus promises to listen to us. 
We are his friends. We are his family. He has that kind of a personal relationship with us. He wants to if we will turn and give him the time because any relationship needs that. It needs work. And Jesus says that he will give his disciples exactly what they want. Just ask for it and it's yours. I thought Justin did such a great job last week of addressing this question of asking God for anything and the promise that he'll give it to us. I'm not going to take much time on it this morning, but let's be clear that Jesus cares about the desire of our hearts. He wants us to be bold in expressing that to him honestly. And as we remain in him, we will grow in our knowledge of who he is and of his will. We will avoid the presumption of assuming we know best and praying with a kind of name it and claim it attitude where we insist on our own way. And we'll also avoid the even greater temptation of falling into disbelief of having such low expectations that we don't even ask at all. There's nothing more presumptuous than the assumption that answers to prayers don't happen anymore today like they did in the early church in Bible times. Jesus is challenging his disciples. He's challenging us. He's saying, try me, ask, come to me. Let's talk about it. Let me listen to you as you will listen to me. And he shows us, most of all, how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. With thy kingdom come, thy will be done. High in expectation and low in a position of humility and coming to God as we we see eventually that we must. So next Sunday we will be taking time in our service in a special way to make room for prayer and to ask God for his healing presence among us. We'll also be hearing the story of Amanda Tanner and her experience of having COVID recently and her recovery from that and being in the hospital. A lot of us have been praying for Amanda. Jesus is waiting for us to ask. What else does Jesus say in this passage about remaining in him? Well, he makes a direct connection later between our remaining in him and our loving one another and keeping his commandments. To remain in him requires determined love. How can we love each other like that? Well, simply by not separating, by being branches. If Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, then we are in this together. We are inseparably interconnected. That's now who we are as Christians. But we don't like that because it's hard. The togetherness part is really hard. And our self-centered nature leads us in the opposite direction. The devil whispers to us, so you have a friend you're not getting along with? Unfriend them. You have a co-worker who really bugs you? Well, just avoid them. You have a family member who's needy and who you really can't stand? Well, just find ways to keep your distance from that person. Your spouse isn't meeting your wishes, isn't fulfilling you? Well, maybe it's time to reconsider that relationship. But Jesus gives us a simple command. He says, love each other as I have loved you. 
Recognize that you're attached to one another and remain rooted in love. Crosby, Stills, and Nash many years ago had a song uh, with the chorus, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And not worrying about the original meaning of that, I'm taking that as uh, a way of maybe helping us grasp what Jesus is saying here. That often we think about the people we aren't with. We think about the wishes we have that are not fulfilled. But Jesus says, this is who I've given you. You are the body of Christ. Stop seeing the people who are attached to you as a nuisance or as an obstacle to your happiness. They are your life. Remain with them. Only then will your joy be complete. He is the vine and we are the branches. And as we learn to love each other, he brings the fruit. Patience, kindness, peace, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, love, and joy. And joy in particular is highlighted in this passage. This is the joy that comes from seeing freedom in a different way, not as freedom to do whatever we want, but freedom to be who God created us to be. And we think of fruit as external, but here it's clear that the Holy Spirit is generating, nurturing fruit within ourselves that then comes out in our actions and in our speech. And we long to be fruitful, even to be abundantly fruitful. But I think sometimes when we hear that Christians should be fruitful, that the church should be fruitful, we, we think of that in terms of how the world sees success, in terms of numbers and influence and even power. In reality, fruitfulness, as God sees it, comes down to faithfulness. We remain in Christ when we faithfully care for the needs of a friend or a child who is struggling or an aging parent or someone in our life with chronic health issues. There may be no obvious harvest to that, but I believe that Jesus views that kind of ministry as at least the equivalent of a stadium full of converts. There's something else amazing in this passage. The relationship between a rabbi and his disciples was top-down hierarchy. Jesus was the master and they were his servants. When Jesus chooses to call them friends in verse 15, he offers them a new identity. And he's done this before when he washed their feet in chapter 13. A proper rabbi would never have done such a thing. To even suggest it would have been crazy. But now Jesus redefines love and friendship as being willing to die for your friends. We saw this when he said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is still their teacher and their Lord, but now he is also the friend of the disciples. He has come close to them and to us. He lays down his privilege and his power, and he obeys his Father, even to the point of giving up his life. As John says elsewhere in his first letter in the New Testament, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. At the cross, we see true and ultimate love on display. And by laying down his life, Jesus makes new life possible for us and invites us to grow on our journey of faith in the power of the Holy Spirit.
If there's one word I want you to take from John 15, it's a verb that's repeated 12 times in this short passage, and that is remain. Jesus says, remain in me as I also remain in you. And the King James Version translates this as abide in me. I really like that, abide. I realize it's an old-fashioned word, and and that's why the New International Version uh, has translated it as remain in me. But I think abide is also a strong word. It feels rooted. It feels active, reaching out. It's from the Greek word meno, which literally means to make your home in. So Jesus is saying he's the way for us to be at home with God. He's saying, don't just come to me, abide with me. Walk into my house. We often assume that we have to earn God's favor. After all, it does talk a lot about obedience in this passage, right? But notice that it does not say that we must first obey God and then we get his love. Then he'll allow us to enter in and to abide with him. No, Jesus is saying that as we receive his love for us, we will be changed and we will want to obey him. Our hearts will be changed. Our desires will be changed. The true message Jesus gives us here in John 15 is that he is always with us and that we can never be separated from his love. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now that is an incredible statement. Think of the Father's love for his Son. It's a love beyond what we can comprehend. It is a universal love. It is the deepest love, the greatest harmony in the universe. Think of your greatest love. Think of your love for a family member or for a close friend or or maybe for your child. Our love is only a poor reflection of God's love. God the Father has a perfect, everlasting love for his Son. And that is the same love with which Jesus has loved us. Jesus says, make your home in that. And then he washes our feet. He washes our feet and he doesn't expect us to return it. He says that we love him back by loving each other. To abide means to rest in his love and to share it. Abiding in Christ is not so much about the things that you do for him as it is resting in what he thinks of you. And this seems to be the hardest part of Christianity for us to learn. God's acceptance is given to us, not as a reward for what we've done, but as a gift. And when you receive that, when you abide in it, when you rest in it, his life starts to flow through you and you start to change. Not because you're told to change, commanded to change, but because you change. Real change begins not with being told what you have to do for God, but with believing what God has done for you. He is the vine and we are the branches. Our response joyfully is to remain in him and in the freedom of his grace and love. Jesus wants us to know that we are united to him. He will never let go of us. He says that we'll flourish as we abide in him, and he promises to fill us up, to satisfy us, so that our joy may be complete. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Lord, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Thanks be to God who has given us abundant life, eternal life, and loved us with a love that endures forever. Amen.